we live in a time where so many things can stir us and challenge our faith in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would refresh it today as we worship you, as we even listen obediently to your word. Please give us the wisdom to understand as well as to apply it. Definitely live in an opportune time, a season where we as your church desire to bear fruit, to reach the lost, and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with that, we do commit our time together, asking that you would encourage us and that your Son would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll go ahead and open up your, your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, we are in the final chunk of a very important passage and also a very technical passage that is riddled with a variety of interpretations. So we're taking our time going through them so we can understand the context very carefully. So we come to this uh, passage, verses 16 through 21. Please follow along as I read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So what a passage before us. Uh, we began our study uh, starting verse 16 a couple of weeks ago, and when we jump into it this morning, we will begin in verse 19. The continuing uh, title of this sermon or of this message or groups of messages is the witness and the word proclaiming the power of Christ's return. And of course, this all goes back to the opening verse of this passage where Peter says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So that is the event that is in view. And in light of that very close event that will be witnessed by the first century church, Peter seeks to encourage them and seeks to reinforce their faith regarding that event, regarding an event that has not happened yet, but which was spoken of by not only the apostles, but even the Lord Jesus himself. And so he is reminding them that they can trust that word, that they can believe it, that they do not have to be as the false teachers are and fall into disbelief because perhaps there is what is perceived of as a delay of the return of the Lord in judgment and in salvation. So he reminds them in the very beginning that he is not making this up. This is not, this is not a fairy tale. This is not something that the apostles 
went, went out on their own and tried to come up with some clever story, something to trick people, something to build within the church a false confidence. He's saying, no, the word that we are teaching is true. And hence, we have two pillars regarding this teaching. The first, of course, is the witness. That is the eyewitness of Peter and those who were standing with him. And that covers, of course, verses 16 through 18. He says, we saw this. We saw the Lord Jesus himself on the holy mountain. It's a true event. It's reliable. And so, of course, in light of that, we come to pillar number two. Right? Pillar number two is the word itself. So you have two things testifying to the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. Pillar number two is the Word. And of course, Peter uses these two things to demonstrate the truth of his testimony. Now, of course, when it comes to the witness, Peter breaks it up into four particular parts. The first, of course, in verse 16, is a witness to the truth, right? This is not cleverly devised tales. We are telling the truth. Secondly, is a witness to the glory. That is, it speaks of Christ appearing in a glorified form. That is the glory. Then there is the witness of the kingdom. And this is going to play somewhat into the message today. But that Peter was a witness of the kingdom. And of course, that is drawn out from God the Father's own testimony. So in verse 17, when he says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, that is the Scripture being pronounced from heaven that is drawing our attention to the fact that Christ is King. He is the beloved Son. He is the chosen one. And that He is the one who is to rule. And of course, all of that provides a preview of what is being anticipated by Peter in this letter. So he's a witness of the kingdom. And fourthly, a witness of the presence. And of course, that is drawn by Peter's mention of the holy mountain. We can conclude that where the presence of the Lord is, that place is holy. And of course, Jesus Himself was on that mountain, Him being God in the flesh, and so that made that mountain holy. Wherever Jesus went, that place was holy. So those are the four witnesses. The four witnesses. And today, of course, we come into the Word. The Word concerning proclaiming the power of Christ's return. That return in glory that is soon to be upon the first century church. So let's look at verse 19. He says this, So we have the prophetic word made more sure. We have the prophetic word made more sure. So what's the lesson we draw from this? There are things about this passage that we learn concerning the Word of God. And And what's really great about this passage is that there is a benefit for us regarding how we view the Word. Our very confidence in it. So, we're going to go over three particular things today and we will save uh, verses 20-21 through because in a sense, even though they're related to this overall passage, they stand on their own in teaching some very important doctrines that will benefit and grow the church. But here's the first thing regarding the Word is that it is settled in its truth. That's the first lesson today. The Word is settled in its truth. In fact, the church, you could say the church itself is settled in its truth. That is, that is the nesting ground of the church. We have nothing to stand on if we are not standing on the truth of Scripture. And so here is a very real example coming from Peter. So we have the prophetic Word 
made more sure. So that is the translation of the New American Standard. You may have uh, something else depending on the translation with you today. So there is some debate regarding what Peter is talking about here. So a question comes up. Is Peter, one, saying that the eyewitness account makes the prophetic word more sure, or is he saying that even though we have Peter's eyewitness account of the transfiguration, we have something even more reliable that is the more sure word? And the reason that question comes up is because the word so and the word made do not appear in the Greek text. And so what we have in effect here is we have the prophetic word more sure. So we have to be faithful to study that carefully and unpack that. So is he saying something along the lines of the word is confirmed or, or the, the, the testimony of the word is strengthened because of our eyewitness account? Or does the word on its own simply is, is the word on its own simply more sure? So I don't know about you, but I was brought up, especially going through seminary, there was a lot of, it's the weird the things you debate about in seminary and, and, and going on from there. But I, it was reinforced to me again and again that this was actually saying that we have the more sure word, meaning that we can look at the word of the prophets and conclude with a greater amount of confidence that what Peter's saying is, is true than Peter's own eyewitness account. So you see how that works there. Peter's saying, even though I saw this, you have the Word, and the Word is more reliable, more reliable even than my own eyewitness account. So, very briefly, we would say that it's, it's difficult landing our plane on this interpretation, because if we have the more sure Word, it, it's amazing that Peter would even first appeal to his own eyewitness account. It's amazing that Peter would even bring it up. Secondly, what do we see in this account? We have the Word of God, the Word of the Father from heaven itself. So we should not seek to make a, a comparison between the reliability of the Father's own words and the inspired, God-breathed Word of Scripture. It is all God's Word. And so they are equally reliable. This is the Father's own word concerning His Son. So rather than pitting Peter's eyewitness account against Scripture, what we would say then is that he is using his eyewitness account to draw our attention to Scripture's witness regarding the return of Christ, regarding the coming of Christ that is in question, that Peter is teaching, that Peter is anticipating, and that is being denied by, Pete, by several, it seems, of Peter's detractors. And so we have that that difficulty to work through. So I think what Peter is saying and what we can conclude is that even though we ourselves are not standing there with Peter, James, and John, we still, based on that testimony, can be sure of it as if we were standing there with them. Regarding this word spoken from heaven, remember, it confirms the prophecy of Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and Isaiah 42. We call that the royal decree that God the Father is making, that He is announcing from heaven, giving us a preview of Christ's glorious reign. And so Peter says that because of his own testimony, we now are able to have a greater certainty of these Scriptures because of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Because what the transfiguration does is that it gives us the right interpretation of these Scriptures. 
of Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Isaiah 42. So what Peter is not doing is pitting his own eyewitness account against the account of the Word itself. Now as we go on, Peter will make this point, if you want to look down to verse 20. He's saying, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So we'll get that into that passage on a deeper level next Lord's Day. But for now, we can say that Peter... Uh, saying that is related to what he is explaining in verse 19. That he is trying to counteract erroneous interpretations of Scripture regarding Christ's return. And so what he is saying is the transfiguration event cements in our own minds the correct interpretation of those passages from the prophetic witness. See, Peter is very concerned that we don't get this wrong. He wants us to get it right. Because there are many different cleverly devised tales being taught within a number of churches. And so that's his conclusion. What Peter beheld on the holy mountain lends itself to a greater confidence in the prophetic witness. It's a great explanation from from Thomas Schreiner, a pretty lengthy quote. He actually contends that the word sure, if it's talking about being more sure, could mean more, most reliable or, or very certain. And so I quote, He, Peter, was simply saying that believers have a word from God that is entirely reliable. Peter was not suggesting then that the prophetic word is more reliable than the transfiguration, but he, that he was saying that we can say with certainty that the prophetic word of the Old Testament refers to the coming of Christ. So that would be the view that I would, would respect in this, in, in this passage. So going on, uh, Schreiner concludes, the transfiguration then is not conceived as more or less reliable than the prophetic word. It provides, listen to this, it provides a confirmatory interpretation of that word, and this interpretation was granted to Peter and the other apostles. So even though... Even though Peter, in a, in a private sense, along with James and John, was witness to the transfiguration, it confirms a prophetic witness which is being proclaimed to all. So in that sense, we do have more certainty from the Word because it was not a private affair. We all now hear the Word preached. And yet Peter is saying that in witnessing Christ transfigured, it, it rightly interprets All of those prophecies that foretell Christ as reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we do not want to miss that. I think uh, the early church was, was questioning that. Is Christ going to truly be victorious? Is He truly going to reign in the midst of His people as King of kings and Lord of lords? Because there are a lot of people saying otherwise. Just as they did not want to doubt that then, nor do we want to doubt that reality today, That Christ is currently reigning at the right hand of the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords, reigning uh, reigning among His enemies and advancing His kingdom as His church preaches the Gospel. Very important reality to embrace. But that, that truth should be settled. We should be settled and confident in that very Word based on Peter's eyewitness as it confirms the Word, as it really interprets the Word for us so that we come to a right understanding of it. Namely, the fact that Christ would return in power and glory. 
We see the benefits of that, the numerous benefits of being settled in the Word and rightly interpreting it. Of course, that transfiguration was a preview of what was to come. That was explained in a previous message. So let's come to the second point. The first is that the church is settled in the truth of Scripture, settled in its truth. Secondly, we are centered on its work. That's our focus. That's our preoccupation. That's our primary responsibility, not just those of pastors and teachers and preachers and evangelists, but all who are part of the church. We are, as Peter says, look at verse 19, to pay attention to the Word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now you go up a little bit and he says, to which you do well, right? This is our relationship to the sure prophetic Word. And he says, you do well to pay attention to it. Pay attention to it as what? Well, not just any old thing, but as to a lamp shining in a dark place. How crucial is it today, and it always has been, that the people of God perceive the Scriptures correctly? Illustrations help. right? And one thing that we want to see the Scripture as is, is, is light. It gives forth light. It is a lamp shining in a dark place. So what, of course, this tells us is that it is not a lamp among many other lamps. right? It is not one of many. Peter here is able to stress the uniqueness of the truth of God's Word. It is as a lamp, not among other lamps, but a single lamp shining in a dark place. So not only are we settled in it, we are are shining it forth. We are centered on it. We are focused on it. Woe to the church that fails to pay attention to the Word, to stay fixed on that which guides it in its faith and life. Talk about Scripture often as our final authority, right? Scripture alone. Not Scripture in a vacuum, right? But Scripture as God's Word that stands above all other things. It is the final authority. Stands even above our tradition. Stands even above our preferences. The fact that it shines as a lamp in a dark place, means that especially to the church, it should be all the more obvious. Where is God speaking, right? Where is a word from the Lord? Hey, did you see the light? You know, sometimes we act like bugs, don't we, in reference to Scripture? Don't go toward the light, right? But as believers in Jesus Christ, we go toward the light, and we're fixed on it. We're captivated by it, and we we pay attention to it. We are, we are engrossed in its truth and its beauty and its revelation. Because when Scripture speaks, God speaks to us. So he says, pay attention to it. It's a familiar word related in the Old Testament. When the Lord says, behold. A little simple word. Behold! Pay attention! Focus! And so Peter says the same thing. Behold the Word. Behold the sure Word. That is confirmed. Scripture so often in in various passages is seen as a light. A very precious one is Psalm 119, verse 105. Your Word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. I can not only see where I'm walking, I can see in part, the road ahead. I'm not flying or, or walking blind. 
but there is a clarity that Scripture brings. In the New Testament, we read passages like this. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writes this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What a privilege. Like what, what, a, what a blessing the church has to not just recognize the lamp that is shining, but, but what it means, what it is. It is not merely a light. It is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what that lamp calls us to do is to see Christ exalted, is to glorify Him through proclaiming His Word and calling men to repentance and faith. Paul goes on, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Listen to this, verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, we don't just look at the lamp. We take it and shine it forth as life-giving truth, as a gospel of power and life. Very key word for us. See, what does this do when we pay attention and we see this lamp shining in a dark place? You think about where is the darkness anyway? Where is the darkness? The darkness in this world exists wherever Christ is not believed. And so we take the lamp to the darkness and, and expose that unbelief and call men to believe. We call all men to come to the light but their deeds would be exposed. And as believers, we live in the light so that our good deeds would be exposed as, have, as being a work of God and not of the flesh and not of our own strength. But what does this do? It gives us a couple warnings, I think. Some gracious warnings. First of all, it's this. The fact that the lamp shines in a dark place warns us against ignoring the light. That is to say, the light is not really there. How criminal it is for... For the church, however immature, to deny the light's presence. To act as if the light has either gone out or it has no place, right? We ignore it. We treat it as if it's not there. When we are tell, to tell the world that this is the light and the light cannot be ignored. Here's another thing. It warns us against dimming the light. So you can ignore the light, but the light's not going away. Well, sometimes in the flesh we try to dim it. Again, don't help the world. That's what the world's trying to do. The world is trying to say that the light is not really there or that it is ineffectual. It's just, it's just old news, right? It's, it's, old, it's, 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 it's writings composed by a bunch of ignorant, superstitious men. It really doesn't accomplish anything. And sometimes we act the same way. As though the light is present, it's merely helpful for those who may believe it, but it really doesn't it doesn't, there's no power to it. It's really not that effective. But we are not to dim the light. We are to hold it up. Here's a third warning. Warns us against removing the light. See, there's ignoring it, there's dimming it, and then there's just getting it out of the way. As if to say, it's not welcome. How tragic it is for the, the church who claims to know and love and follow Christ to be embarrassed 
by the Word, to be ashamed of it, and then to fall in line with unbelief and to say, okay, well, it's not welcome here. It's just, it's just getting in the way. There's, there's new light, right? There's new revelation. There's, there's new truth. There's hidden insight that we've been missing. Scripture's not necessary anymore. And so we remove the light. And of course, we are called to make sure that that lamp is fixed, that it is not removed, but that its place of prominence is upheld. Here's a fourth warning. Warning against extinguishing the light. That a would-be church should try to snuff the lamp out. Why? Because it's offensive, right? The word that we preach is intolerant. It hurts people's feelings. It marginalizes people. It makes people feel unworthy. Well, yes, the Word does all of that. You say that like it's a bad thing. But it does that all for the purpose of bringing men to a saving knowledge of the truth. Yes, the Gospel does marginalize. Yes, the Gospel is a prick on the conscience. It does, it does expose men's wicked deeds. And yes, sometimes that hurts feelings. It hurts plenty of redeemed people's feelings as well. Does that mean we extinguish it? No, we shine it all the brighter. So that it can bring truth and healing to those who need it. Rather than seeing the Gospel as offensive, we see it as absolutely necessary, absolutely key to the life of the church. That it is the power of God and the salvation. That as it goes forth, God is faithful to do His work through it. So instead of ignoring it or extinguishing it or putting it aside, being offended by it, dimming it, what do we do? We take the light and we run to the darkness. That's what the church does. Take the light and we run and we expose the darkness. Because the darkness, as if you've read the Gospel of John, what does it say about the light? The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot what? cannot overcome it. It cannot comprehend it. It's as if the darkness does not know what to do when the light comes to bear. And that is something that should give us great confidence concerning being a light bearer, is that the darkness can never extinguish the light. Because this is God's light. And not only does Jesus call Himself the light of the world, right? I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But He calls us the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And in that sense, we are able to clearly reflect the glory of Christ to this world. And so we follow Jesus' own example given in Luke 12.35, be, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. What encouragement. And he's speaking this to this, this generation that is anticipating Christ's return. Don't be caught off guard. Don't let your light be extinguished. Don't run out of oil. Be dressed. Be ready. Be vigilant. And keep your lamps lit. I think that brings us further on in our text. To number three, so regarding 
the Word, the witness of the Word, we have the fact that the church is settled in its truth, the church is centered on its work, and finally, the church is certain of its victory. When we proclaim the Word of the Gospel, when we have embraced it as God's truth, as God's revelation, and we continue to proclaim it and disciple others, we are saying something about it, right? We are not neutral toward the Word of God. That, that very act of the ministry of the Word reflects a particular confidence, a particular certainty regarding what the ministry of the Word is going to accomplish. And the Word will ultimately be victorious. Now look at verse 19 again. He says this, "...which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." Now let's look at the connection within this verse here. We pay attention to it, and then he says, until the day dawns. Now, Peter is in no way saying that when the day dawns, we stop paying attention to it. We continue to fix our hope on it. But what this is, is an anticipated result of the Word being proclaimed and the Word being attended to. He says, do all these things until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. There's a particular responsibility that we have here. And the dawn is, a, again, a wonderful thing in Scripture. He says, until the day dawns. So what is Peter talking about? We have to remember, Peter draws a lot from the Old Testament. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. I think we can get a clear view of, of Peter's instruction to the churches and its application for us today. Think about, I was thinking about Psalm 57.8. Referencing the dawn... Is, is, a, is a preparation for worship. He says, Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. As if his own heart will cause the sun to rise. There is an anticipation of worship. A newness. Something to look forward to. Something that is anticipated. And I would say that when Peter here is talking about the day dawning, right? Until the day dawns, he is speaking specifically regarding this day of the Lord that is anticipated, that the church is looking forward to. Remember, the day of the Lord in Scripture is a day of judgment and salvation, right? Typically, they go hand in hand, where, where God saves His people through judging His enemies. It's a time where the enemies of God will be put down, judged in a very visible and public fashion. The day of the Lord, as we've referenced before, a, day of, a, t a time where God shows up in a particular manner. That's why we talked about the parousia, God's, or Christ's present, presence in judgment and redemption. But you read Isaiah 13, Ezekiel 13 and 30. You have Joel 1, 2. I mean, all, so many New Old Testament prophets reference this day of the Lord. Read also about it in Amos 5. Zephaniah, Malachi, all over, right? They anticipate this day of the Lord. Now, depending which prophet you're reading, the day of the Lord could refer to the sacking of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar's forces, right? The Chaldeans or the Babylonians. But post-exilic, or after that initial uh, exile, we find that the prophets are looking forward to another day where the Lord will show up in judgment again. And it could refer to certain nations, but it also refers to Israel. We anticipate 
that God is going to show up again. His presence will come to bear and He will judge Israel. Now we referenced last time that the thing, that this event that the prophets were looking forward to is about to be fulfilled in the life of the first century church, where Israel, or that whole old covenant system, will undergo a final severe judgment by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which that old system and everything built on it will come to a sudden and devastating end. It will be the day of the Lord. We've referenced several New Testament passages already regarding the apostles' anticipation of that day. We find it in Acts. We find it in the letters to the Corinthians, Thessalonians, even the book of Revelation. That is an anticipated day in the generation to whom the apostles are writing. But more than it just being a judgment on those who rebel against the Lordship of Christ, more than it being a a judgment upon a particular city, there is a benefit for the people of God. And he describes it here. Whereas it may be judgment upon unbelief, it is newness for the believer. That's why he characterized it this way. Until the day dawns. Yes, the day of the Lord for a believer will represent newness. Whereas it will be darkness and destruction and devastation for unbelievers, it will be like the sun rising on God's people. In one of the prophets, we read this. Actually, Numbers. Numbers is one of the first places we we read this, Numbers 24, 17. Mark this one down. It's very important to our interpretation of this passage. It's Peter's leaning into the Old Testament to make his point. So Numbers 24, we start at verse 14. We read this, And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. So here we have that days to come, looking forward to a particular time in the future. Days to come literally means the end of days, to the end of a, at the end of a particular era. End of days. Now remember, the Lord is speaking through the prophet Balaam. The false prophet Balaam. So in verse 2017, we see this, now that we have context. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Now this was fulfilled, it is believed, typologically through King David. You have, a lot of, you have a lot of places in the Old Testament where there is a prophecy made, and while it may be fulfilled typologically in one of Israel's kings, ultimately it is looking forward to a fulfillment by Jesus Christ. And so in 2 Samuel 8-2, we read this regarding David. And he defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. And he came, or he measured two lines to put to death and a full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. See, David would be that scepter crushing the forehead of Moab. But ultimately, it is fulfilled in Christ. He is that star, right? He is that shining star. The light of the world. And not only does this reference the work that Christ will do when He puts down His enemies, 
and His grace shines on us, but there is a particular word against false prophets regarding this theme of the dawn. Now listen carefully. We find this in Isaiah, Isaiah 8, a, a passage that is riddled with, riddled with the, the glory of God. But listen to verse 19. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, that is the law and the testimony, it is because they have no dawn. Right? So there's a problem here. This is an interesting way of putting it. Why, why does a false teacher refuse to speak forth the law and the testimony? Well, the cause is that they have no dawn. The, word, the Hebrew word here is shakar. It is dawn, daybreak, or morning. So what does this mean regarding false prophets? Points to a couple of truths. First and foremost is that there is no light from false prophets. There is no true revelation. There is nothing that they can say that will shine light on anything. There is nothing that they can say that will reveal the Lord's will and goodness regarding anything. They are, in a sense, following and teaching cleverly devised tales. See, what they say does not reveal anything. It does not give the light of life. There is, the fact that, there is, that they have no dawn also means that there is no future for them. Their so-called counterfeit light will be snuffed out. The Word of God will endure, but what they have to say will be cut off. They have no morning to look forward to. Both they and the words they preach will be brought to an end. But what will remain is the light of Scripture and the blessed grace that the church will experience as the Lord dwells with them and saves them. So back to this, this really neat theme of dawn and star. So the dawn and the star, I believe, signify two very key things. The star represents the coming king. And the star that Balaam sees, right? Off in the future, at the end of days. And of course, Christ came at the end of days to usher in the new humanity and the new creation. The very creation that He is working out right now as His kingdom advances. So the star represents the coming king. And the dawn represents newness. Of course, a new order, right? A new creation, a new rule, a new people, a new way of life. That is how the church is to think of itself as it is blessed by the saving grace of God and the ministry of the Word. It is in the context of newness. Newness in its totality. Think about Christ's words at the end of the book of Revelation. He says, see, right? You do good to pay attention to this. See, I am making all things new. Behold. So the star is the king, the dawn is his kingdom, and as the gospel is preached, the star will rise, and a new day that will never end, a sun that will never set, and a light that will never dim nor be extinguished. That is the quality of the new creation. And so this rising light is not confined to three of Jesus' disciples on the holy mountain. The presence of Christ, the morning star, is for all the church. See, now the church has the star itself. The star has come and the star shines brightly. 
See, this morning star, I believe, refers to Jesus Christ himself. You say, well, what gives you that idea? Well, let's look at what Scripture says. At the end of the book of Revelation, you don't have to turn there, but Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus himself says, I am the morning star. So you go back to Revelation chapter 2, and he's talking to the church at Thyatira, the compromised church. And he says this, He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end. Think about that right now. Who, who are the people who overcome? The church, the true people of God. We overcome through our faith, and we keep his commandments. Listen to this. He says, To him I will give authority over the nations. That speaks of the reign and rule of the church with Christ. Now, verse 27, he says, And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. So, of course, that speaks to the, the Psalm 2, Psalm 110 that we had been talking about, the reign, of the, the reign of the king. And he says this, As I also have received authority from my Father, so we will reign with Christ, and I will give him the what? The morning star. I will give him the morning star. See, this should be amazing in, in the mind of John. You think about uh, to all the Old Testament passages that refer to this, this light that is about to dawn on all the world. Right? In Isaiah 9-2, we read, the, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, see what we've been talking about, a dark land, the light will shine on them. Right? The light will cut through it. The light of Christ and His kingdom. So in all of this, what Peter is doing is signaling the age to come. He's anticipating the end, right? The end of the old system and the ushering in of the new. So that's why we read in Hebrews 8.13, I believe we referenced this before, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to disappear. That is the whole old covenant system. With all of its sacrifices, even its very temple, are getting ready to disappear. And so this disappearing happened when Jesus judged Jerusalem. That system was growing old, ready to expire, and Jesus showed up and put a definitive end to it. But he didn't just bring an end to something. Through the new covenant, we see a, a new beginning, a new day dawning. That light is shining. That's why, Peter, that's why Paul tells the Romans... In Romans 13, 11-14, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Right? It's for the first century church. The night is almost gone, the day is near. See the day signifying newness. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of what? The armor of light. See how we gather all these passages, we see these themes of, of stars and light and newness pointing us to this Wonderful ministry of Christ in the new covenant. He says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. I mean, talk about what it is to characterize the darkness. It is that. Sexual immorality and strife and jealousy should not be this way with the church of Jesus Christ. But we are to do this. Listen to Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard 
to its lusts. That new day is coming. Paul gives the Thessalonians similar instructions. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now note, so many detractors of of what the apostles are teaching are saying the same thing. You go from church to church, they're denying the word of the apostles, they're denying the judgment that is coming, they're, they're denying the, uh, the, the removal of the old and the bringing in of the new. Listen to this. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Same old thing. Wherever the darkness is, this is the voice of the darkness. This is what people who are in unbelief say. Everything's going to be okay. Peace and safety. The real problem is Christians preaching their gospel, telling me I'm a sinner and telling me I need to repent. But they believe they are safe. They believe that they are experiencing true peace. But it says that they will not escape it. They will not escape the judgment. Paul goes on to say, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. So you see this theme all over. This is what's being anticipated by the apostles. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. See, Paul's giving similar instructions to the Thessalonians that he just was to the Romans. This particular end of days is coming. The day of the Lord is coming, but don't get lazy. Don't get complacent. Don't get careless. This is the opportune time, right? This is the day of salvation for you. This is the time for you to be roused from your sleep and to be faithful and to go preach the gospel because that's never going to end until Christ has put all his enemies under his feet. The judgment on Jerusalem, remember, was just the beginning. Be alert and sober, he says. Do not sleep as others do. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Listen to this. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to be under wrath, so don't act like those who are under wrath. Live as in the day. You are of the day, not of the night. Speaking of Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing so this whole time. This is the time for the church to strengthen one another, to encourage one another, not to try to live their lives separately from the community of Christ, but to join together for the cause of Christ and His kingdom. See, all that, this all goes back to this shining that lamp in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So let's go back to this morning star. We kind of went down a rabbit trail to put these things together. But he says, do all these things until the morning star rises in your heart. So we, we understand through the words of Jesus Christ that he is the morning star. He declares himself to be that morning star. So I think there is a connection here between the morning star rising in your heart and to his promise to the faithful in the church of Thyatira that he who overcomes would be given the morning star. What is Jesus saying to the church in Thyatira when he says, I will give you the morning star? He says, I will give you myself. What greater blessing can the church experience than to have more of Christ? And it's not to say that Christ gives himself by measure, right? But as the church overcomes, they will be in a position to experience 
all that Christ has to offer. It's not, that as if, it's not as if He is any less or more present with them, but that in, but that in being faithful, right, in overcoming, the church puts itself in a position to experience more of the grace of Christ that is already available to them. They set themselves up for an opportunity to continue to mature and strengthen. See, as we remain in immaturity, there is a sense in which we cut ourselves off from particular blessings of Christ. In our immaturity, we are, in a sense, blind to some of the the ways in which He blesses us, blind to some of the ways in which He grows and strengthens His people. And we would desire by His grace, by His power, to experience all that He supplies to us by His abundant goodness. So when He says that, again, the, this morning star rising in your hearts, He's not saying that the Word will stop doing its work when the morning star rises in our hearts. But when the morning star rises in our hearts, how much more should we continue to shine that light knowing that Christ's kingdom continues to advance and His church continues to be a light to the world. So He gives us, we experience even more of the grace that He has to provide. So don't think that Christ has somehow failed to give us all of Himself. We have Christ or we don't have Him at all. We have all of Christ. And we want to experience as a church all that He has to offer. But to the one who overcomes those temptations and compromises, not only to both the early church and the church today, but as we continue to overcome, as we continue to grow and experience and persevere through temptations, we open ourselves to more grace, more provision, and more blessing that Christ abundantly offers His people. So we should desire that. There's more for Christ to enjoy. And you find that as you mature, your joy grows, you enjoy Christ more. It's not that Christ is withholding Himself from you. It's just that as you grow, as you develop, as you grow in Christ-likeness, you come to recognize the, the, the bounty at hand, the greatness of Christ's grace and provision. And that's what's in view here. That's what it is for the morning star to arise in our hearts to see that there is more of Christ to enjoy, more of Christ to satisfy, more of Christ more of Christ to experience that nothing else compares. See, it's interesting. Think of uh, the opening chapter of the book of Revelation as foretold by the prophet Zechariah. Every eye will see Him, right? Every eye will see Him. And the tribes of the earth will mourn as they mourn for an only Son. See, the judgment that Jesus pronounced on the holy city once that has come to pass we would see that the church would see that his words were true, right? So would his enemies. But what, but what one eye perceives as justice and wrath, the believing eye, the believing heart rather, perceives as grace. See, Christ, for Christ to put down his enemies is a grace to us. It is a blessing to us that needs to be acknowledged. That Christ, going back to our point, is giving us victory over this world as we experience more and more of His goodness. So, for the morning star to rise in one's heart, in the heart of the church, means that Christ 
comes to have and receive more preeminence and honor from the hearts of His people as they see His words confirmed in real time. And so this would be definitely a boost of faith for those who would live to see Christ return in judgment on His enemies and and save His people. And so even today, we say, well, is this confined only to the first century in terms of application? I'd say not at all. What this does is shed a lot of light on the process of what we know today as sanctification. The church isn't, right, the the church wasn't hatched, right? The The church is a living organism. The church grows. The church isn't wooden in, wooden in respect to its relationship with Christ. We are born again, and we continue to grow. And so as the Word of God continues to do its work in the life of the church, so do we can come, to, can come to treasure Christ more, to enjoy His presence and goodness more, so that He comes to occupy a more magnified and prominent position in the life of the church. Even Paul, is, you know, he's trying to encourage the church, right? I, my prayer for you is that you would consider like, the height and depth and width and breadth, right? That we would really come to see more of Christ. See, we don't see all of it. We continue to grow. But in that growth, we desire to see Christ more and more exalted, honored, and loved in the midst of the church. And this happens only as the church grows. So even though Christ is present with the church in His fullness, the church as it grows continues to experience Christ in a fuller way as His Lordship pervades every area of the life of the church. So as the faith of the church deepens, so does the morning star rise. I mean, that's the mission of the church, right? That that we would see Christ. That's our desire. And that the world would see Christ. And how much more do we see Him when He rises in our midst, when He is given the honor and worship and adoration that He so rightly deserves? Every grace and blessing that we receive from Him by the Holy Spirit is one of abundance and one that is meant to grow. That's why we call it the fruit of the Spirit, right? Fruit isn't meant to wither, it's meant to grow, to be more attractive, to be more nourishing, to the point where we can share it with one another. See, this is all a process, but it is all still a desire of all who claim Christ. See, though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day, but what is, what is this renewal? What characterizes this renewal? What's what P- Peter says here? The morning star arising in our hearts. See, that Christ would be honored, that Christ would be all in all. But that is the ministry of the Word. Three things. Our desire is that the Word would be settled in in its truth, that we would be centered on its work, and that we would be certain of its victory. Let me tell you, for the morning star to arise in our hearts is a sure sign, a sure encouragement that Christ is victorious and that in Him we have the victory. It's the same word given to the first century church and it carries the same application for us. That we now are in the thick of it, right? We are actively watching Christ procure the victory. You are actively watching the morning star rise that every tongue and tribe and nation would come and bow the knee in love, faith, and adoration. That's what I'm saying, guys, when I say the fact that this, that this is a past event confirms in our mind the truth of Scripture and that we can go forth knowing that this has come to pass, knowing that the word of the Lord is true, 
and that we currently are walking victoriously, that we are following Christ in triumphant procession, spreading His Word abroad, and watching men come to a saving knowledge of the truth, so that the morning star would not only arise in our midst, but in the midst of the entire world. That Christ may be worshipped. And that Christ may be all in all. So that is the Word. We have the witness and we have the Word. And that's just the beginning. So next week we will get into the remainder of the Word's prominence in the life of the church. Let's pray. Father, thank You again uh, for Your goodness. Thank You that uh, You've given us Your Word, that we can see it as a sure, true, and certain thing that changes our lives, that we can shine out from our midst, but also to know that because this Word has come true, that we are living in the midst of victory. That You did appear in judgment to judge Your enemies, but also to deliver Your people. And so that judgment and deliverance continues today as Your Gospel goes forth. Lord, we would desire Christ the morning star to rise in our midst, that even as a local church, that He would be preeminent He would receive the honor and glory, but there would be no question as to what our priority is, and that is to see Christ glorified. So as He does rise in our midst, Lord, may we receive all the the joy and blessing and and love that He offers. Lord, we, we, we do recognize in our own immaturity, sometimes we fail to see those things. We fail to recognize what is given in full because it's been paid for in full. So Lord, please... uh, Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand, but hearts that, uh, that love You, um, knowing that you, are, that you are Lord of Your Word and that You keep Your promises and that we can stand here as Your church today as we continue to grow and multiply and uh, to see Your dominion spread over this world, that we can be confident, that we can have a true and settled faith in You because You have spoken And it has come to pass and is continuing to come to pass. And so, even as the the early church looked forward to your coming in judgment upon that old order, so do we look forward to uh, the expansion and fullness of the new to where where your Son can hand over the kingdom to you and that all all the world loves and obeys you. Help us to be faithful to that calling, Lord, knowing that it is a certainty. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.